Hello, listeners. My name is Craig Zerpolo, and this is Why Science, a podcast about scientific research and its impact on policy and the community at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This series is produced by COBE, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute, with the assistance of WVCW Student Radio at VCU. For more information, visit kobe.vcu.edu and wvcw.org. This show is supported in part by the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Music for today's episode is provided by Way, Shape, or Form. Download Person, Place, or Thing and other releases on Bandcamp at wayshapeperform.bandcamp.com. Our guest today is Dr. Caroline Cobb, an assistant professor of health psychology at VCU who focuses on alternative forms of tobacco use, including hookah and e-cigarettes. Dr. Cobb, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and give an overview of your research? So my name is Caroline Cobb, and I'm an assistant professor in the health program in the Department of Psychology. So the work that I've done um, thus far has really focused on alternative tobacco products. And what that means is basically any tobacco product other than cigarettes. Um, I've done research on smokeless tobacco, uh, snooze products, hookah, um, electronic cigarettes, cigars or cigarillos or little cigars. And really, I've been interested in understanding how these products support dependence-like characteristics, so um, how they deliver nicotine, and as well as the harm potential effects they have, so health effects like carbon monoxide exposure, toxicants uh, like carcinogens that you may, that you may find when when you when people use these products um, and I use the I, the methods that I use to understand alternative tobacco products focus mo- mainly in the clinical laboratory so in a controlled environment where I have people come in and use these products once or twice or, or longer when did you first take an interest in science and research and uh, what were you interested in at first so it's kind of a funny story when I was an undergraduate I was in the psychology, uh, I was a psychology major, and I found out that I, I needed to get research experience to get to go to grad school because I thought I wanted to go to grad school. So I emailed all the professors that I that I liked, and luckily one of them responded, and she just happened to have a tobacco clinical laboratory. So since the very beginning, I've actually been studying tobacco products, and that first study that I worked on was looking at the nicotine patch and how, um, how expectancies about whether or not the nicotine patch might help you or not be so great, how that influenced how you use them. So, so straight away, I, I started working on nicotine tobacco products. And then um, after, after I graduated from my undergraduate degree, I went and worked for a clinical, labor- or a clinical trials group. And I worked on something completely different, um, maternal and fetal medicine. So nothing to do with tobacco products. But actually, that work really helped me realize that I wanted to continue studying substance abuse in general and tobacco products more specifically. So I came back and I went to graduate school uh, to study, again, alternative tobacco products focused on um, hookah primarily. That was what my dissertation turned out to be. There's a a communal dynamic to hookah that's different than any other tobacco product. It's something that you can use with friends. Of course, you can share a cigarette with someone or something like that. But hookah is the... the, It's predicated on a a group usage. And I'm Mm. curious if... In your research, you've seen that that influences how people use it or, you know, how that uh, changes outcomes for people who are potentially going to get addicted from first starting with hookah. Great. Really good question. And I'm lucky that we most recently published a paper looking at group use. So most of my work has been studying hookah in the laboratory. So we bring people in and have them smoke usually by themselves. And you know, as you were just saying, that's typically, if you go to any hookah bar or hookah cafe, that's not how they're typically used. Uh, So in this most recent study, we actually did recruit 
friends. So we call them dyads, so groups of two. So you ha- um, they had to be self-identified friends. And we had them come into the laboratory and smoke together as well as alone so we could understand what changes when they smoke together. Like you said, um, we, could, we looked at their nicotine levels. We looked at how they smoked, which is called the puff topography. And what else? We also looked at carbon monoxide. So that's a measure of, of a, a toxicant that you get from smoking hookah. Um, and so something interesting. So surprisingly, um, in the group sessions, um, the actually the carbon monoxide yield, so how much smoke or how much um, car- exposure was uh, delivered to each person was lower. You got less carbon monoxide exposure overall. The amount of smoke that you consumed was larger than when people consumed um, by themselves. But you have to remember that two people are using the same water pipe or the same hookah. And so um, on average, I I know this number because I was just looking at this data, was about 76 liters of smoke, which is quite a lot of smoke when you're um, smoking together. But when people were smoking alone, they smoked about 51 liters of smoke. So if you cut the the 76 in half... Um, so if each person only smoked half that amount, you you actually inhaled less smoke overall when you smoke with friends. But in terms of nicotine delivery, so nicotine is the dependence-inducing product that you get or the drug that you get from smoking, nicotine levels didn't differ. So they were able to reach the same. You were still getting the same amount of nicotine when you're smoking with your friend. Um, you smoke, um, and so you might say, well, that doesn't really make any sense. You, you took in less smoke, you got the same amount of nicotine, but you got um, less carbon monoxide. So what's changing is the pattern of smoking is actually changing the tobacco. It's because there's more puffs being taken, the tobacco is getting hotter. It's changing the delivery characteristics of the smoke. So the bottom line is smoking with friends uh, versus smoking alone is still not reducing your harm, at least in this in this example in this in this environment in this uh, in this study, people were still getting significant carbon monoxide levels and significant nicotine delivery. Just broadly with hookah, I feel like mm-hmm. there's some sort of perception that it's not as bad for you as cigarettes. Mm. And um, I'm curious in your research, um, how do those compare? Uh, that's a, another good question, and we we've spent a lot of time talking about this and presenting data about comparing these two these two products. They're very, very different. That's the hardest thing. A cigarette you smoke in five minutes. A hookah session can take, on average, 30 to 45 minutes per per person. And the tobacco within hookah is very different than cigarette tobacco. Um, You also use a charcoal to light it, um, which is typically not used for cigarettes either, for cigarettes. On a one-to-one basis, um, you get very different levels of nicotine, tar, and carbon monoxide between one, and this is a one-to-one, so cigarette versus one smoking session. Um, You certainly get much, much more carbon monoxide. You get much more tar, which is everything but nicotine. You get, um, basically on a one-to-one, hookah isn't by no means any safer than smoking. And we spend a lot of time trying to dispel that myth that hookah is safer, that the water filters the smoke. Um, Again, another myth, the water does not filter the smoke significantly to reduce your harm. Um, certainly, the, wa- the smoke does pass through the water, but um, it doesn't reduce it doesn't reduce the harm um, associated with hookah smoking. We're seeing a really uh, steep decline in cigarette smoking overall in young people. Um, hookah, we're seeing the exact opposite. We're seeing more people take up hookah. Um, most recent data from sort of a national data set were 
extremely high levels for hookah. I think they surpassed cigarette levels actually for the first time. Um, and so, yeah, so the concern is, are people going to start with this more social intermittent use and then transition to a product that we know um, can lead to really deadly outcomes? There's still, and the data regarding hookah health effects is still emerging. We still don't quite know how similar they are to cigarette health effects. We just know that there's sim- similar constituents and there's um, beginnings of data that show similar long-term health effects from hookah. And so on that same line, Mm -hmm. I know cigarette use is down Mm -hmm. and hookah use is up. And I'm curious, um, how do e-cigarettes factor into that? Because I would imagine that e-cigarette use is up since it's a a new thing. But I'm wondering if the the rise in hookah and e-cigarette use is countering the decline in cigarettes, or are we seeing an overall decline with those two things increasing? It's a great article out that shows off exactly what you're talking about. Um, it measures the overall use of tobacco products among u- high school and middle schoolers for each of the individual products and then overall to see, as what you're saying, is it just that sick kids that would have smoked cigarettes are now smoking e-cigarettes and hookah? And I think there's a, a little bit of both happening, that we may be one attracting um, youth that would have smoked cigarettes to these other products, but overall there was an increase in tobacco use. So there seems to be some recruiting of, of non-smoking youth to some of these other products. So it's not, and, and, and the data don't tell us that one way or another. It just appears that overall tobacco use as, as a whole has gone up slightly in the past year, past two years. And with e-cigarettes, there's, or at least there is, are some people who look at them as a, a smoking alternative or a cessation mm-hmm. tool or things like that. And I'm curious, based on what you've seen, um, do a lot of people use e-cigarettes in that way, or are there a lot of unique new users who are coming to e-cigarettes who didn't go to cigarettes but are starting off with that? So far, the data for, and it's hard because there's differences when we look at youth versus adults, but looking at adults, uh, there's a small proportion of adults who have never used cigarettes that are using e-cigarettes. It's a very low percentage. For youth, it's also a lower a lower percentage relative to youth that have already used cigarettes before. So never smokers are still a small portion of that e-cigarette user population, but it's not the same as an adult. I believe it's a little bit sli- slightly higher percentage. Um, but so they're being used, so e-cigarettes are being used, one, by current smokers, and then also by former smokers. Um, whether e-cigarettes lead to cessation outcomes is another big question, or how likely they are to lead to cessation qu- outcomes. And I think the jury is definitely still out on on that question. We're actually doing a really exciting study at VCU to look at um Long, we're looking. We're recruiting current cigarette smokers, and they're being randomized to receive one of three nicotine doses in an e-cigarette. And we also have an additional control, and we're looking at outcomes related to whether or not they reduce their smoking or change their smoking behaviors, as well as health outcomes. Because another big question is, what is what is long-term e-cigarette do use do to your lungs? or other health indicators, and we don't really know. We've never, e-cigarettes have only been around for about a decade on the market, or a little bit longer, um, so we don't, so those questions are still unanswered, so hopefully the study of ECU will, will begin to answer some of those. With e-cigarettes, you mentioned that there's a difference between young users and older users in terms of how many people are, are using e-cigarettes who are former smokers and current smokers. And I'm curious if there are other markers of identity that kind of dictate how prevalent e-cigarette usage is. 
Yes, there are. Um, I'm probably not going to remember them all correctly right now, but we there's there definitely are some trends in race, um, which racial groups are using these products. Depending on the data set, sometimes um, it's minority groups that are more likely to use e-cigarettes. Sometimes it's whites. I want to say um, definitely more males and females are tending to use e-cigarettes at a higher prevalence. Um, education in some I want to say in some data sets we've seen more highly educated individuals more likely to use e-cigarettes or higher income individuals just because e-cigarettes are more expensive than other types of tobacco products but the key here is that it's changing so quickly um, prevalence is is prevalence awareness um, is is really just every every year we're just waiting to see what what's happened next um, it's a really exciting I say exciting time to, to be studying tobacco products because of these changes. With e-cigarettes, there is a sort of popular belief that they're safe. As a researcher, how do you feel about that popular notion and how can educators and researchers sort of combat that? Yeah, it depends, I guess, when you're talking about the, the relative safety. Um, if your product that you're comparing it to is a combustible cigarette, then on most indices of harm potential, so carcinogens or toxicants in the the e-cigarette aerosol, they are typically at lower levels than what you find in a combustible cigarette. So, which is not that hard to do considering how terrible and bad we know cigarette smoke is. If you're comparing to normal air that you breathe, e-cigarettes do have concerning levels of some chemicals. Formaldehyde is one. Um, that they can produce depending on the e-cigarette that you use. And that's the other issue is that these products are so different. You can, um, there's some that have these m- massive battery sources that can heat the liquid and heat the the heating element that turns the liquid into aerosol. They can heat it to a very, very high temperature, which is going to change the composition of the of the aerosol versus a, a smaller device, what we call sigalikes that look very much like a typical cigarette. The batteries are much smaller. They don't have as much heating capacity. So the the type of aerosol is very, very different. So it's not just a matter of what's in the juice, which obviously that that will change from brand to brand, exactly. even from flavor to flavor, but um, it's a matter of the the device you're using as well, right? And how you use it too. There, we've done a couple of studies looking at a phenomenon called dripping, which is where you actually drip. You don't load up your e-cigarette with your juice um, for the day. You actually drip individual droplets of the juice just to vape for that that moment. And we found that that method creates much higher higher levels of some of those toxicants that I mentioned, just because of the way um, the juice is being added to the device. So it's also so it's yeah it's a, it's the product, it's the juice, and it's the way it's used also. In 2009, flavored cigarettes were made illegal because it was the belief of lawmakers that they were marketed more readily at children. And I'm curious if there are similar feelings with uh, regard to e-cigarettes. Great question. And that's definitely been one that's been circulating um, among scientists, among policymakers, is what do we do about these e-cigarette flavors? I think there's like 4,000 or more flavors on the market. And there's a lot of flavors that do seem very kid-friendly, like bubblegum or candy corn. Um, then you have the tobacco-related f- flavors, uh, menthol, et cetera. Um, and so 
I would say, again, the jury is still out on how to best regulate these flavors. Uh, users, so e-cigarette users, you'll hear them say that, you know, I smoke e-cigarettes or I use e-cigarettes because of the flavors. Um, I can use flavors that I can't get with tobacco cigarettes, and so it's easier for me to, to it was easier for me to transition to e-cigarettes because I had these options. I had these op- different types of flavors. Um, but then we worry about the attraction of youth uh, because of the sweet and candy-like flavors. And the FDA has a deeming rule that's out. Um, it was out for comment. Um, I believe now the rule is sort of in, in flux with whether or not, or because right now e-cigarettes are actually not regulated by the federal government in any capacity. Um, the only thing that they have say over is the marketing claims, um, which they've made pretty clear that e-cigarettes cannot be marketed with a cessation or health-related claim unless they have data to back it up and they have to ask for permission to, to use that claim. Um, so right now it's sort of just free for all. Anything's out there, and I, and I guess that actually gives us some opportunity to really understand what the flavors are are doing, um, how they're attracting users, and we actually have several studies here at VCU that are actually studying specifically whether or not flavors make a e-cigarette more likely to be abused or more appealing for uh, for individuals. We have a study going on just across the street um, in the in Thurston House to do that. We're studying whether fruit flavors. Uh, versus cream or fruit dessert-like flavors um, and tobacco-like flavors, whether those differ and how um, and how appealing they are to um, young cigarette smokers, so youth or not youth, young adult cigarette smokers. In your time studying alternative tobacco products, is there anything that jumps out at you as uh, something that you didn't expect to find out? Sure. Um, I'll start with the story of my uh, master's thesis, which was a somewhat unexpected finding. So the purpose of this study, the, my master's thesis, was to look at different types of smokeless tobacco products that are available that are on the market, um, and specifically two new types that had just recently emerged when I was when I was in graduate school, around 2007, 2008. And these two products were called Snus. And these products are very, very popular in Sweden um, and other sort of Nordic countries, but they were more recently sort of introduced and promoted by the tobacco industry in the United States. And they were actually promoted in a very interesting way, which, which was for smokers. They said, smokers, use these products when you can't smoke. Use these new smokeless products, um, which we thought was very interesting, whether it's a way to sort of circumvent um, clean air laws to con- to make it easier for smokers to continue using their brand um, so so that was our thinking so let's under- so we th- th- my thesis was to understand really what what characteristics do these products have do they deliver nicotine are they pleasant to use are they are they going to be used by smokers actually and so we brought in smokers to our lab and we had them use um, use their own brand of cigarettes several other different products as well as these new smokeless products and they rated them um, they rated we also measured their nicotine levels and, and other and other uh, outcomes. But what was really fascinating is that they absolutely hated the Snus products. These products rated the, the worst among um, among all the ones. They liked the cigarette that delivered no nicotine better than these other products and these smokeless products. They were really unappealing. And they actually didn't deliver very much nicotine either, which was very curious because it's kind of interesting to to us as scientists, why would a tobacco industry promote this product that's one, not very pleasant to use and doesn't actually deliver any nicotine, which is going to um, help reduce smokers' cravings, potentially when they're in that environment that's, that doesn't allow smoking. And so it, it kind of made us think and wonder, well, why? 
and I still don't really have a good question for a really good answer for that question. But uh, both, but actually, both of the Snooze products you cannot find in the market now. Um, they've they've mostly disappeared for these two, the two main brands that we were testing. So speaking in particular about alternative tobacco products, so hookah, e-cigs, and all of that, do those require different types of prevention and intervention than traditional uh, combustible tobacco? I think. I think so. Um, I don't have a, I don't have a lot of data to back me up on this, but I think we do a really great job in youth settings, educating individuals about the harms of tobacco smoking and smokeless use. I think there's been a, just we've got a really great body of work for those products. The problem is we don't have that for these alternative products. They're so new. Um, I think hookah is starting to become more. Uh, more known and established um, as a as a source of harm. I think um, VCU actually does a really great job. Linda Hancock does a great job educating our students about about hookah specifically. But the data, I think, also because scientists aren't really um, there's not there's just one one message that this is bad. Don't use it. It's not as clear, so it's harder to communicate that to individuals. And in terms of interventions, we still. Um, we still have very few interventions available for hookah. Um, I don't know of any studies that have looked at how to um, get individuals to quit electronic cigarette use um, either. So I think that's just, I think they will, they will due to some of the, the things you talked about earlier, the social aspects, these different, um, these different usage patterns, they're going to require different potentially treatment approaches. You're a presenter at the From Research to Rehab uh, town hall meeting that Kobe is hosting in April. And um, what are you looking to present there? And uh, kind of how, how are things going preparing for that? The major theme is that I want to educate um, attendees about what e-cigarettes are and what they can do in terms of nicotine delivery and kind of put that in the context of use among college populations. Um, so I'm going to be spending a little time talking about e-cigarettes, pieces and parts, a little bit about toxicants and nicotine delivery, and then talking about how the prevalence, what, what we know about how they're being used um, on college campuses. Well, I appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much for uh giving us your time, and uh, good luck getting ready. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thanks again to Dr. Caroline Cobb for joining us. To learn more about Dr. Cobb's upcoming talk and other speakers at the From Research to Rehab Town Hall meeting, visit kobe.vcu.edu slash symposium. Our final segment, Mindful Music, encourages listeners to take a break, be present, and appreciate performances by VCU students and graduates. Today's Mindful Music is Falling Phase by Way, Shape, or Form. We hope you enjoy and stay tuned for weekly episodes every Friday afternoon.